Well, this morning, as I thought about, uh, uh, as I go back and I think about what uh, led me to today's topic, um, first of all, I've been assigned about personal holiness, but uh, as I was thinking through that topic and what to say about it, I realized that uh, who I would be speaking to was a room full of men, at least uh, 90-95% of you who are men in here. And as I thought about holiness, which is such a broad and big topic, uh, I really began to think about how I could narrow that down. And what I narrowed it down to uh, was the one thing that came to mind was our sexual purity. Think about it. When was the last time that you went to your favorite source of Christian news, whatever website that is, and uh, you read the headline that said, pastor of such and such megachurch disqualified from ministry, and the next phrase did not involve the words sexual purity, right? Adultery, pornography, fornication, or anything else. Now, I'm sure that it happens. I, I know pastors fall because they can't control their anger or because they embezzle money or a whole host of other areas where they lack holiness, but we live in a day, men, when we are bombarded by sexual temptation. And so we need to remember that even as pastors, even as we've been reminded this morning, we are not immune to sin. We are of the flock as well. As preachers are prone to do, I could give you the statistics about it. Uh, Christianity Today asked pastors, since you've been in local church ministry, have you ever done anything with someone, not your spouse, that you feel was sexually inappropriate? And 23% said yes. A Barna study revealed that one in seven pastors and one in five youth pastors say that they struggle with pornography. Over half admit to having struggled with it in the past, and 5% of pastors and 12% of youth pastors say they are addicted to it. Now, you might hear those statistics, and like me, you might discount them because of their source, right? Christianity Today, you might think Christianity astray. That's what Christianity Today is, right? George Barna wouldn't know a Christian if he ran into him on the street. He thinks anybody who's been ordained online is a pastor. I, I take those, those statistics and just throw them out. Come on, this is George Barna we're talking about, right? You know the old saying, or the paraphrase anyway, there's lies, there's really bad lies, and then there's statistics, right? And yet we love to use them in our sermons, don't we? But, you know, really, no matter whose statistics you use, no matter what surveys you look at, things don't get much better. You can, you can look at the most conservative of survey groups that you want, and the sad thing is, is that pastors can fall to sexual temptation, you know, I think it may even be discouraging to hear the statistics because it's easy to listen to them and to, and to think, well, you know, I mean, look at that. Everybody else is doing it just to feel like it's hopeless. On the other hand, though, I also think it's important to realize that the danger is real, men, and that the warning from today's scripture is desperately needed, not just in our churches, but in our pulpit as well. It has to start with us. Because it's easy to think as a pastor, well, you know, obviously our culture has major problems with immorality. And, you know, sure, that creeps into our church as well. But I'm in ministry, right? Again, it's easy, like Brian said, to think we're above the other people in our flock. But the reality is that even pastors, even good, God-fearing, evangelical, reformed, pillar network conference-going pastors can get sucked into sexual sin. And so as I look out 
on a room this size, and as I think about even the most optimistic of statistics that I read about pastors and sexual sin, it saddens me. Because while I'd like to think that this is simply a problem for other pastors, for the other denominations, for those other networks, I know that due to the hidden and secretive nature of it, I would be fooling myself to think that it would not happen to us. In a group this size, I'm sure that some of you are battling to remain sexually pure even today. I'm sure that some of you who have lost that battle are trying to get back on the right path right now. I realize many of you are fighting the daily temptation to view pornography. And the sad part is that as hard as it is for those of us who are of a certain age, as the next generation comes up, the statistics show that the casualties are going to mount exponentially as well. And I think we need to keep that in mind as we have our, our, our interns and our pastoral residents that, that come up and our seminary students who graduate. Let me give you just one example. Recent research shows that the mindset towards pornography has completely shifted with the rise of the internet generation. The internet generation are those who have never known a time when they don't have the internet. Okay, now that's not me, that's not many of you, but, but there are some of you in here, you've never known a world without the internet at your fingertips. Listen to this quote, uh, which sadly makes perfect sense when you think about it. One of the themes that emerged from the research on pornography is the enormous generational differences. There are wide gaps between how younger and older generations not only behave towards porn, but also what they believe about porn. In short, not only do younger generations use porn more regularly, they are also less likely to think that there's even anything wrong with it. While half of adults think viewing porn is wrong, only one-third of teens and young adults believe it is wrong to view porn. When asked to rank a series of, quote, bad things a person could do, things such as stealing, lying, having an affair, overeating, and so forth, teens and young adults placed all porn-related actions at the very bottom of the list. In fact, teens and young adults said not recycling is more immoral than viewing pornographic images. They also placed thinking negatively about someone with a different point of view as a much worse activity than viewing pornography. Only 11% of teens and just 5% of young adults say their friends think that viewing porn is bad. The vast majority say their conversations with friends around porn are either neutral, accepting, or even encouraging. A plurality say it's just assumed that people look at porn sometimes. And when it comes to watching pornography, teens and young adults aren't getting accountability from their friends. They are instead getting peer pressure towards it. Now, we would be naive to think that that mindset is not going to creep into the next generation of the church as well, and not just the next generation of the church, but the next generation of the pulpit as well, to see it as less and less of an issue. We live in a world that is connected to anything and everything at the push of a button, and it's all right here. It's all in a device that fits in one hand and that we cannot live without, that we carry around with us every moment of every day, right? You lose the phone, you feel like your life is coming to an end. And when you have the world at your fingertips, you have everything it has, the good, the bad, and the ugly right there as well. Now, yeah, you've got, you've got Logos Bible software. I, I, if you had told me in seminary, okay, and I'm not that old, but if you had told me in seminary that at the push of a button, I would have 
TDNT and Brown Driver Briggs, and I could decline any noun and verb and everything with the push of a button, it would have blown my mind, right? I, I, mean, I mean, who would have imagined such a thing? But we've also got, of course, with those thousands of amazing resources, thousands or probably millions of things that can ruin our ministries at the click of a finger as well. And so, in a world like this that we inhabit, how can we remain holy with such corruption all around us? How can we remain sexually pure? How can we say no to temptation, both a virtual and real? And I think that one way to be encouraged to do so is to look to someone who faced very real temptations in this area and managed to keep his holiness, his purity, and his integrity. Take your Bibles and open with me to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. Now Genesis chapter 39 is primarily about the presence of God with his people through good times and bad, but it is also helpful, I think, to examine how Joseph faced, handled, and successfully overcame sexual temptation in his life. Because Joseph was someone very much like most of us. He was a leader who desired to be holy, a leader who wanted to follow God, but who also faced incredible temptation as well. And young pastors, you should realize that at this point in your, uh, I'm sorry, at this point in his life, Joseph was a part of your generation. Uh, if he lived today, he would be considered a millennial. I don't know how many of you are millennials. Any millennials in the room? Uh, he was a millennial. Scholars believe he was right around the age of 27 years old in Genesis 39 here. So let's look at what this young man did to successfully say no to sexual temptation and yes to a life of holiness and purity. Look with me, Genesis 39. Now Joseph had, had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard in Egypt, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him an overseer of his house over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything of the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were in the house, she caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that you would, um, Lord, continue to give us attentiveness to it, Lord, that you would, uh, Lord, 
Convict our hearts, Lord, that you would uh, speak to us through this text, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What we see in this passage here is a man in leadership who wins a major battle against sexual temptation. And in doing so, I think he provides some keys for us for how we might win the battle for holiness in our own lives. What did Joseph do to enjoy success where so many others suffer failure? I I think it can be broken down here into three keys. First of all, Joseph prepared himself before the temptation. We see that beforehand he was prepared. It becomes obvious when you read the text that this was a man who had mentally and spiritually prepared himself before the temptation was ever going to take place. For one thing, Joseph seemed to have a good awareness of what the dangers were. And really, there were dangers everywhere. If you think about it, if you think about the scene of this, here was a man who was known by nobody, right? His family's sold him off, right? He's in another land. He knows nobody. He's away from his home. He's anonymous completely. Of course, Joseph didn't know that his life story was going to be encapsulated in Scripture forever for us to read, right? For all he knew, he was an anonymous guy in an anonymous land where nobody knew him, right? And talk about setting up a scene for you to sin, right? First of all, you're down, you're discouraged, you've been abandoned by your family, you've been sent off where nobody knows you, and now here's this huge opportunity. Men, anonymity is the fertile soil where sexual sin grows. When no one knows who you are and you're confident that no one's going to find out what you do, that is when you are most tempted by sexual sin. And for some of you, this has been your downfall. If everything that you looked at, everything that you thought about, everything that you did each day was put onto a screen in front of your church before you preached the following Sunday, it would radically change what you do. But you give in to sin because you feel like you have anonymity. Sin loves darkness. Sexual temptation feeds on anonymity. That, I think, is one of the major reasons why we've seen such a foundational shift and an exponential increase in pornography use over the past 20 years, right? I I mean, 20, 30 years ago, you had to go out and you had to go somewhere to get pornography, right? Now, it's something you can do in your office, in your car, in the privacy of your own room. It doesn't matter. And so one of the first things that we see Joseph do is to do everything he could to avoid sexual temptation. Verse 10 says, he would not lie beside her or to be with her so that he would have the accountability of others around him. He was trying to stay out of compromising situations. I think that's what that implies there. He knew that this was a private sin, and so he avoids being with Potiphar's wife in private. He was the embodiment of Proverbs 5, 7, and 8. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, the adulteress, and do not go near the door of her house. He knew the principle of Proverbs 5.21, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. Notice, too, that he was prepared in the fact that sexual temptation would not be a one-time battle, but rather that it was an ongoing struggle. Verse 10 tells us Potiphar's wife spoke to him day after day. Now, all we think about is this one time, right? Lie with me, right? And so we think sometimes, well, I'm ready. I go into counsel some woman, and she grabs me and says, lie with me. I'm in no way, you know, whatever. That's it. But 
That, I mean, that's just ridiculous, right? Lie with me here is the exclamation point at the end. It's not the beginning, right? No doubt Potiphar's wife started much more subtle. He, she spoke to him day after day, right? Little hints, little double entendres, throwing out little hooks to see if he's ready for the bait, right? This is, this is how it happens. That's how temptation comes. One of my professors in seminary used to speak of the slow leak that leads to adultery. He used to say, it's not what most people think, because we think of having an affair, right? And we hear someone say, have an affair. Again, we read about some pastor and we say, how in the world did that happen, right? Like it came out of nowhere. The headline is like the balloon popped, right? Because we have this, this guy who's this amazing pastor and then pop, adultery, right? But like other sexual sin, adultery never comes out of the blue. It's, it's what he described as a slow leak, right? It's, it's the slow leak of the balloon. It begins with this emotional readiness, right? Your ministry's going rough. Things are hard. Uh, your wife is distant. You're, you're discouraged. You're depressed. Things are not going well. And then, and then there becomes this growing awareness of this person, and she's, she's the opposite of all that. She, she brings joy. Then there's time spent thinking about that person. Maybe just some innocent meetings, just talking, right? Then, then some more internal, some, some, some discontent, some self-pity. I mean, you're in ministry and look at the disrespect you get every Sunday, right? Look at the difficulty with these sheep and come on. You think about the negativity of your present situation and then, and then, well, the, the innocent meetings maybe, maybe become an intentional meeting. Maybe you engineer the circumstance and so it appears accidental, but you know in your heart that you're setting it up. Some public lingering, you know, just talking, followed by some private lingering. Some time spent dwelling with how good that other person makes you feel and the relief that it is to be with them. More frequent meetings for legitimate purposes, of course. Occasional isolation. Maybe a couple of just small displays of affection. Denial. Rationalization. Justification for it. And then, not long later, the giving in to sexual temptation. But of course, everybody... When they hear it, they think, what happened? The balloon popped, right? He had an affair. How did that happen? But the reality is that the failure began long before the fall. When that person failed to walk away from those first few steps down the path and to stop that slow leak of holiness and to cut it off at the very beginning. And really, we could construct a similar scenario with pornography, couldn't we? No one ever thinks they're going to become addicted to pornography. I, I don't think anybody goes into it and says, you know, I really want to be a porn addict. That's, that's where I'd like to be at the end of my day, you know? No one thinks, though, it can, can ever control and dominate their life. They think that, that that's what happens to other people. And it's because Satan is the father of lies, Right? He's been that since the beginning. You shall not surely die, he tells Eve, right? Your eyes will be opened. Life will be good. You'll have the happiness that God's rules are denying you. 
And in the early days of porn, those first few steps in, it looks harmless. I can control it. If I just, if I just look once, it'll satisfy me. I, I just want to look this once. It's the lie, right? Just this once, then I'll be satisfied. Does it ever satisfy you? No, of course not. Then, then you need more, then you need more, and you end up becoming the person that you never thought you'd become. These are the lies that we have to be prepared for beforehand if we expect to successfully battle them off when they come. Because each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, and then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. That brings me to our second key today, and that is that Joseph responded biblically at the time of temptation as well. Four things to notice here. First of all, notice that when tempted, Joseph didn't focus on his, desired, his desires, but rather he focused on his responsibilities. Verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Sexual temptation always begins in your mind, and so you've got to be ready to focus your mind in the right place, that is on truth, if you're going to battle temptation when it happens. And this is what we see him do. He focuses on his responsibilities as a slave to Potiphar and as a servant to God. And this is a great strategy for us. When you are tempted, man, by sexual temptation, think about your responsibilities. Think about what it would mean if you were to give in. What is this going to do to my church? Right? What is this going to do? How is this going to shake my flock's faith? Do you know how many churches walk away when a pastor falls and says, I don't know what I can believe anymore. Think about the hundreds of people who would walk away and say, can I trust anything? Not just from the, the year that you were having an affair without knowing it, but from the decades of work that you've put into the ministry. How can I know if he believed any of it? He stood in that pulpit Sunday after Sunday. What does this mean for me? If you're a husband, think about what it would do to your wife. And I can tell you this far more than most of us can ever imagine. If you're a parent, what effect would it have on your children? And most importantly, what would it do to Christ? You'd be publicly destroying not just your reputation, but the reputation of Jesus Christ in your community. Because remember, you, you, you may not want this to be the case, but your community looks to you as the leader of the church whose name is Jesus Christ. And when you fall, in your eyes, you know what happens? See, Jesus Christ means nothing the bunch of hypocrites that they are. What would your sin do to the cause of the gospel and to the glory of Jesus Christ? Now, of course, the lie is... Well, no one's going to find out, right? I'll, I'll just keep it secret. Part of the temptation is no, no one's ever going to know. But again, we have to remind ourselves, this is another one of hell's lies. 
The reality is that every sin has a rippling effect that goes out and influences many other people farther than we can imagine, whether we want to admit it to ourselves in that moment or not. And so I beg of you, count the cost of a lack of holiness before you give into it, because it will be like a rock thrown into the pond, and you will never stop those ripples. Secondly, biblically respond when temptation comes by calling sin sin. Listen, Satan will try to get you to minimize sin by calling it by other names, either verbally or mentally or both, right? Just to put it in a lesser category in your mind. You're not, you're not having an affair. After all, all those steps leading up to that, that's not having an affair, right? You're just having a little fun. You're just, you're just getting to know someone. That's it, right? It's just an innocent little relationship. Before you get to looking at pornographic websites, you're just cruising around the internet, right? You're just kind of pushing around. It's no big deal. But in verse 9, Joseph said, how can I do this great wickedness? Wickedness. He calls it what it is. Great wickedness. Satan tries to minimize the gravity of sin by calling it other things, to minimize it, to make it small. But we must resist that by following Joseph's example here and being willing to call great wickedness, great wickedness. And Satan will try to get you to do anything but that. Third, respond biblically by consciously living in the presence of God. Joseph asks, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph didn't buy the lie that he and Potiphar's wife were alone. He wasn't deceived into thinking that he was anonymous in a land where nobody would ever find out. He was conscious that God was watching and would know exactly what he had done. Even if nobody else found out, Joseph knew that God would know. And for him, that was all it took to say no. Tell me something. Is that enough for you? Are you aware of God's presence with you in such a way that it affects what you do, not just in public, when you stand in the pulpit, when you shepherd your people, but in private as well? Are you living every day in light of the cross in such a way that you are conscious that Jesus Christ had to die not just for your public sins, but for your private sins? Are you living with a deliberate awareness that it is both of those sins, both great and small, public and private, that sent your Savior to the cross? We preach those things, but we also need to make sure that we ourselves are constantly living with a mindfulness of the presence of God so that we will never believe we're all alone, but rather that wickedness is wickedness before God. We sin against God. We need to remember that having repented of our sins and placed our faith in Jesus, that we are children of a heavenly Father, servants of a holy God, and we are responsible first and foremost to Him. Fourth, Respond biblically by literally fleeing temptation. By literally fleeing temptation. When Potiphar's wife finally got Joseph alone and cornered him, he ran. He was a great example of 1 Corinthians 6.18 where Paul says, flee sexual temptation. Flee sexual immorality. When Potiphar's wife grabbed his coat, he did not stick around to talk about things. He did not stick around to kind of you know, worry about her feelings, how she would react. Let's try to, you know, talk this through like adults here. He knew exactly where things were going, and he knew exactly what he had to do. He had to literally, in his case, run. And sometimes you might get the same sense 
about a situation that you are in. And you may not have to literally do it, but you might have to figuratively run. If a woman in your church or someone outside your church is starting to maybe get closer and to get more flirtatious, do not entertain it and enjoy it for a while as your pride will so easily allow you to do, right? But rather run, cut it off, walk away, or better yet, avoid it at all costs from the very beginning. Now, don't get crazy. It's a nice tie, Pastor. Get, get, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> behind me, you know. <laughs> we are all prideful, right? But not every woman is, is saying that to us. But if you find yourself getting closer and closer, listen, and, and oftentimes it's your wives that know, right? It's your wives that pick it up. Hmm. Yeah, you know, keep an eye out. L- listen to your wives. If you find yourself getting closer and closer to someone other than your wife, if you can think of yourself right now that there's somebody in your mind, listen, go home from this conference and put distance between you and her, okay? Physical distance, emotional distance, everything it takes between you and her. If you find yourself getting closer and closer to pornography on your phone or on your computer, do not let yourself drifting along wherever the clicks might take you, run. That might mean removing apps from your phone or dumping your smartphone altogether. It might mean putting a filter on your computer or using accountability software or having someone else hold you accountable. But don't buy the lie that you can hang around and you can linger around temptation and still successfully fight it off and remain holy. You might succeed for a while, but it is only a matter of time before your defenses will get worn down by the father of lies. Instead, run while you still have it in you to run. Because listen, you will cross that line, the line of no return, much easier and much sooner than you think you will. This is part of what Jesus was telling us in Matthew 5, 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is perhaps the most important point that I'm going to make today. So if you walk away with nothing else, at least take this home. Nudge your neighbor who's fallen asleep or glazed over by now and say, listen, get as serious as you need to get. Do whatever you need to do to run from temptation now. Do whatever it takes to maintain your personal holiness while you still have the chance. So, Joseph prepared himself beforehand. He responded biblically to the temptation within it. And then here's the third and final key. Joseph was willing to face the consequences for his integrity. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, right? And so Potiphar's wife framed Joseph with a series of lies. Now, as an aside, it's interesting to note uh, that Potiphar probably didn't believe his wife when she told him that Joseph had done this. Um, He probably actually believed Joseph. Before I studied this passage, I'd never thought of this before. Scholars believe this because if Potiphar 
really thought that the allegations were true, there was no way that Joseph would be left alive, right? I mean, you're a slave, you're in ancient times, you're attempting to rape your master's wife, and you would be executed in no time, right? If he really believed his wife, Joseph's dead, right? So it's likely that Potiphar knew that Joseph was innocent. Again, he doesn't put him over everything he has for nothing, right? He knows the integrity of this man. So it's most likely that he, he's taken what his wife's saying with a grain of salt, right? But he had to do something in order to appease his wife, so he throws his wife into prison instead. Now, as an additional aside, okay? This is a footnote to the footnote that you're supposed to take out of your sermon because it has nothing to do with the real sermon here. But you're all a bunch of pastors, so you can give me a little bit of slack on this, okay? Commentators also point out that most cultures in Bible times didn't even have prisons. And so really, this was a lucky break for Joseph. Lucky break is a reformed humor for uh, reformed pastors, okay? Uh, this was his lucky break here, Okay. Now, this was something I never thought of before, before studying this. If you think about the Mosaic law, there's never an offense that is punished by throwing that person into prison, right? It's just not in there anywhere. Why? Because most cultures don't have prisons in that day. Isn't that interesting? Most ancient Near Eastern cultures have nothing. But, lucky for Joseph... Egypt was an exception to the rule, and sometimes they did practice imprisonment. And so Potiphar, between a rock and a hard place, decides, I'll throw him into prison. And with all that said, Joseph was willing to face imprisonment or even death if Potiphar decides he's not going to believe him in order to do the right thing. I mean, he knows that he's scorning this woman. He knows he's saying no over and over. He knows probably day by day that she's getting more and more upset with him, right? This is not, I mean, we read it all condensed down into one verse, but this is a drama playing out here. And he knows that this woman is going harder and harder after him, and he knows that she's probably getting more and more upset. And yet he's willing to be executed or thrown into prison in order to do the right thing and to maintain his holiness and his integrity. Now, you're not going to face imprisonment or death for avoiding sexual temptation. But are you willing to make whatever small sacrifices that you need to make in order to say no? Are you willing to confess your sin to your wife, if that's the need that be? Are you willing to have men who hold you accountable in your thought life and your actions? Are you willing to live without your smartphone and all of its conveniences, if that's what it takes? Are you willing to go through the hassles of having accountability software on your computer? Are you willing to go through the extra work that it takes to avoid counseling one-on-one -on -one with women your age? Are you willing to follow Joseph in his serious commitment to holiness? And ultimately, the question is, are you willing to follow Jesus in his commitment to holiness and Jesus and what he commands of us? John writes, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk 
in the same way in which he walked. Listen, if you are not walking in the same way in which Jesus walked, then recommit to personal holiness in your life today. Sin should always be followed by sorrowful confession, by genuine repentance, by a restoration of your relationship with Jesus Christ and doing whatever it takes to make sure that that does not happen again. Avoiding the issue and denying the sin are not the answer. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If you're here today and you've fallen into Satan's lie and fallen into sexual temptation and you've compromised your holiness and your integrity, then begin by repenting today of your sin and getting serious about it and getting serious about holiness again. That is the first step for you as you leave this place today. And then prepare yourself with this battle plan. Prepare mentally and spiritually beforehand for the inevitable temptation that's to come. Respond biblically, swiftly, seriously, and decisively when it does come. And then be willing to face whatever consequences that come your way after it's there. It's my hope that this passage will help prepare each of us to say no to sexual temptation in our lives, to say yes to personal holiness, not just for our sake, but for our church's sake, and most of all, for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for... Uh, what you have given us in your word for equipping us here, Lord. We pray, uh, Lord, for this group of men. God, I ask that uh, you would, um, Lord, work in their lives, Lord, especially those who are struggling, Lord, with this area of integrity and purity, Lord. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would use your word to change us today. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.